I'm going to invite you to turn in your scriptures to Galatians chapter 4, the book of Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 3 this morning. Verses 3 through 7 is our passage. I do want to bring up a figure that may seem kind of random this morning, and that is Fred Rogers, as in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, Fred Rogers. Uh, Mr. Rogers has kind of enjoyed maybe a little bit of resurgence in some circles. Uh, many of you I know will remember his television show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I mean, I, I remember it. Uh, I kind of remember the keep, the, what I thought were kind of creepy little puppets that he had in the show. But, I mean, if, you, if there was ever a diction, if there was a dictionary that had faces by words, you looked up kindness in the dictionary, Mr. Rogers would be there. I mean, he is just an icon of, of kindness. And that was the point of the, of the show, was to, to promote kindness, to teach kids kindness. And there are a couple, maybe some fun facts I want to pass on to you about that show. Uh, all of the songs that were in that a show, certainly that the main song that's in it, were written by Fred Rogers. He was a music major in college. He, I think he switched majors and became a, a music, music major. Uh, and he wrote those things. He plays the piano. He's a songwriter. Uh, he loves playing the piano because it helps him with stress. And so you do that a lot in his life. Uh, another fun fact about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was he did not want kids to be scared of Friday the 13th. Uh, he did not want kids to, to, to dread that day for, for whatever reason. And you'll remember those puppets that he would talk to and have uh, conversations with. You may remember one was a king, and he was, um, what was his name? King Friday was his name. And King Friday was born on Friday the 13th. And so every so often in the show, he would build up and have a birthday party for King Friday. And again, it was to promote, you know, kids, don't be scared of Friday the 13th. It's, it's fun. It's exciting. It shouldn't be that kind of a dread to you. And the last thing is this. The beginning of that show is that you remember that memorable way he comes into his home. But there's a stoplight at the beginning of every show. You know, stoplight that you'd seen on the, on the roads. And the yellow light was always lit up. It was always yellow. And he did that intentionally to say to the audience, to say to children and to the children's parents, slow down. You just stop for a moment and just slow your life down and take things in. It's almost it's just great advice for us. I'd love to have a spotlight or stoplight in the, the church as you come in that you see that yellow light just as a reminder for us to slow down, to stop. To be mindful of what you're singing, these words that we sing in these great hymns week in and week out, the prayers that we pray, the scriptures that are read, uh, the passages that we look at together, even the, the, the Lord's Supper, to approach that with a sense of, of a yellow light, to, to slow down and take in all those things. And that's the, maybe the beauty of Advent. It says, we're just going to take a time out right now, and we're going to think intentionally about the incarnation. We're going to think intentionally about who Christ is, why he came. And certainly we looked at that through the story of Zacchaeus. He came to seek and save the lost. Last week we looked at Colossians, and we saw that that baby in the manger was more than just a baby, but that was the God-man, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and he's come to glorify himself and point us towards God the Father. And this morning our passage is going to talk about it, certainly it's going to magnify who God is and what he's done, but more specifically, what the incarnation means for us personally. And he's going to get at that by talking about adoption, what it means to be adopted. And that's a, a big part of what 
the incarnation is moving towards that goal and that mission. So with that being said, as you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 4. I'm just going to read uh, verses 3 through 7 this morning. So also, when we were under, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father God, would you help us to understand uh, the implications of these words, of this standing, and what you have done when the time was full, when the time was right, you sent forth your, your son. Help us to embrace that by faith here now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please be seated? You know, this time I hear, you hear a lot of people talking about Christmas gifts they've gotten in the past. I can remember driving along and listening to sports radio and the announcers. Is, I mean, it was Gamecock football, so there's not a lot to talk about, you know, after in December. And so they were talking about what are the, the you know, fun gifts that you've gotten um, in past and what are the, the bad gifts that you've gotten in the past as well. And we'll have these conversations every once in a while, and I'm certainly not going to bore you with all the exciting and not as exciting gifts that I've gotten in, in my life. But as Christians, we know that the best gift of all, and we'll say this, is Christ himself, the gift of Christ to us. And the beauty of this gift and thinking about Christ as a gift, you plug it into this passage that we've just looked at, you see in kind of in clear ways what that gift means, the implications of Christ as a gift to us. And certainly you walk away with how much God has our good in mind. Uh, you read a passage like this and you see this is how much God is for you. He was for you in your life and how he wants to, to, to not only save but to, but to change and transform and, and, and grow and cultivate him in our lives. And those are the things I want us to, to pull out from this passage. There's three things I want to highlight and we'll dig into it. I want to talk about we know how he's for us because first he made the time. We know he's for us because he made a way. And finally, we know he's for us because he made us his own. Okay? Time, way, and he made us his own. The first one, obviously, he made the time. And I get that from verse 4. It's, it's pretty straightforward. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. If you had to do, if you had to have one verse that defines Christmas, this would probably be, you know, at least the, the top two or three. I mean, it summarizes Christmas. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Uh, it depicts how God at his time, when he saw fit, he sent forward his son. He sent the incarnation. He sent Christ to come and dwell with us. And the question that goes with us is, is why? Why? Not so much why at that time. We don't know the mind of God. He has his, his reasoning certainly for doing that. But why was there such a need for that? Well, the text talks about how we were born under the law, meaning you were uh, created in his image, created by God, and there's certain obligations that come with that. He's your creator, 
And so we're obligated to live for him, to live in a way that, that brings him glory and honor, to live in that relationship. And, of course, we fail. And because we fail at that, what does God do? Does he forget about us? Does he come up with plan B? Does he think about how can I make better people? No, he sends his son. He sends the incarnation into our worlds to redeem us. And we know the end of that story. Christ was born underneath the law. All the obligations of the law, he kept, loved God perfectly with all of his heart, soul, and mind and strength, loved his neighbor as himself, and took the penalty of the law to redeem us, which we'll get into in a moment. But the thing I want us to, to, to maybe pause on a little bit is that God sent his son, and he knew everything about you at the same time. He knew everything about us, and God still sent his son. He knows everything about you, and he still made it so that you can know him, that you can know forgiveness, you can know grace in your life. And I think we, we get and understand that the, the, the beauty of Christmas when our hearts are just amazed by that truth and that reality. He knows everything about us, and yet he still sent his son. There's a biographer named Robert Caro, and he is working on a multi-volume set of Lyndon Johnson biographies. I mean, just thousands and thousands of pages. And he's interviewed by um, a, a journalist, and he asks him, you know, about his, how he got into writing, how he got into being a biographer. And he talks about when he graduated uh, college, he went to work for, as a, in a newsroom, he wasn't necessarily a journalist per se, but he worked at, at Newsday. And he talks about, he got this job fresh out of college. He's young and, and just looking, you know, where specifically do I want to be? And he was convinced that his boss hated him, that his boss did not like him at all because of his, his pedigree and because of his background. His boss did not like him at all. In fact, he would tell his wife, he'd say, you know, don't, I, I know I've got a long commute. We are not going to find a different house closer to work because I'm probably going to be fired here pretty soon. It's just not worth it. Low man on the totem pole, so he had to work Saturdays. Saturday, this is 1959, 1960, okay, it's different communication, different technology. He had to work Saturdays because if the phone rang, somebody had to be there uh, to answer that. And if there was a story that came up or information that came up about a story, somebody had to be there to take notes about it. That was his job. Saturday comes, and he's working, and a telephone call comes in, and it's a guy on the phone says, hey, I know these stories that you've been printing and, and, and doing. I'm behind it all the way. I've got some more information. I've got some files that I want you to have access to and to look at that's really going to bust open this story. And Kara's like, okay. Nobody's in the, the, the room. Nobody can, can do this. And so push comes to shove. He, has, he realizes he's got to be the guy that does this. And so he goes and he meets this source. And he enter, he brings, he's brought into this conference room huge table and stacks and stacks and stacks of files, different technology. And so basically it's, it's pen and paper and typewriter. And he just digs through all these files and he finds the, 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 the golden truth. I mean, the thing that's just going to hit the press and it's just going to be, is going to win the day for them as, as journalists. And, the, and he's there literally all, all Saturday nights and into the, the early hours of Sunday morning. And at the end of the, at the end of his time, he writes up this memo that, you know, summarizes what he's discovered and he leaves it on his boss's desk and he goes home. He's got, you know, basically he's got Sunday off and Monday off as well. Monday morning comes and he gets a phone call and it's the boss. And the boss says, I would need to see you right now, right away. And he, again, he's like, 
he's going to fire me. He's so insecure about this job. He, he's, you know, this is finally it. And he tells his wife, he gets in there and his boss is very awkwardly quiet. And he sits down and, and he talks to him and his boss says, I got this memo and, uh, you're no longer doing whatever you're doing. You're not doing anymore. You're going to do investigations now. In other words, he was so impressed with his memo. It's like, he got a promotion and Kara looks at him. He's like, just totally surprised. It's like, I have no idea what investigation is. I don't know. I don't I have no idea what I'm doing. And his boss turns to him and he simply says to him, turn every page, never assume anything. Let that sink in just a little bit. Turn every page. You put that in a spiritual context. God has turned every page in your life and he knows who you really are. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your failings. He knows your weakness. He knows your shortcomings. He knows your decisions. He knows it all. And what does God do? God sends his son. He sends forth his son knowing who we are, knowing our needs, and that's how he chooses to respond to us. But there's something else I want us to, to take in from the fact that God would send his son to us, and it reminds us how much we can trust him, specifically how much we can trust his timing. Again, do we know why at this point in history that he chose to put forward his son to begin his work of redemption, to to go to the cross and do all of that? We don't. But we are reminded that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that, that, that he is willing and working for his good pleasure and for his glory. And we can trust his timing in our lives We can trust his control over our lives. All of us have things on our calendar, things on our schedule, things that we struggle to really trust God with. The fact that God sent his son reminds us that he's supreme, that he rules and he reigns. There's a promise that Paul gives us in the book of Romans that goes like this, and it'll sound familiar to you. Neither death nor life nor anything else can separate us from the love of God. You ever thought about why that promise is true? Why nothing will separate you from the love of God is because God is in full control, because he's supreme, and because he reigns. God sent his son in the fullness of time when it was right, and it reminds us that we can trust him in all things. If he knows every page of our lives and he still sent his son, how much more is he going to meet all the things that we require of him, all the things that we ask of him, all the things that concern us that we can trust his timing in our lives? The second thing, uh, we know he's for us because he's made a way. Briefly, verse 5, it says, To redeem those under the law, Jesus is born a real human being, a real man, the God-man born into existence and born under the law. And what's the point of that? To redeem those under the law. Well, let's pick on that word redeem for a moment. It means to release a slave from his or her owner by paying the slave's full price. Here's the slave master. He's got these requirements. He wants his slave for himself, wants to to buy his or her freedom, and he comes up with a payment to redeem that person. And so Christ meets the demands of the law, as we alluded to a moment ago. He loves God fully, loves his neighbor as himself, Those are the the obligations of the law, but he also takes the penalty of the law when it's not meant. He takes the curse of the law and he dies in our place. His death had a purpose. It meant something. 
something specific to redeem us, to bring us out of our bondage to the law, to bring us out of our bondage to sin. His death wasn't just a model. That's just such a great example. God did that. I'm going to do the same thing. It wasn't anything like that, but it served a purpose to redeem us, to give us freedom. There's an obituary that ran last Sunday in the Louisville, Kentucky newspaper. And the name of the individual that was listed there was Private First Class John Jack Richard Baines, U.S. Marine Corps. The gate of the obituary, again, was last Sunday. But you know when he died? He died between November 20th and 23rd in November of 1943. Some 70-plus years have gone by, and finally his obituary is making it into his hometown. He was killed in battle that took place between November 20th and 23rd in 1943, and he was just buried in this mass grave. And a nonprofit group that does these kind of things, they went, they discovered the grave, and they pulled out um, the bodies, so to speak, from that, and they went to the process of identifying who these individuals were so families could finally be notified with a sense of assurance and there could be complete closure uh, on what had happened. And so 76 years later, this individual was buried back in Louisville next to his parents in the graveyard that he shares with them. And so the question is, is obvious, why? Not, certainly we get why so long, but why? Why did they, 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 they go to all these links to print this obituary and to make sure that he was buried and he got a full burial, all the, everything that went with that. Why did they do that? Why was so much time and attention given to that? Because as, as people of this country, we respect his sacrifice. We honor his sacrifice. We know that his life meant something that he gave his life for our freedom. It had a purpose. Christ has come to redeem you from the curse of the law. His death has meaning for us. It wasn't a good example. It wasn't the, the morally right thing to do necessarily, but its purpose was to redeem you and me, to make us right with God, to give us freedom, to give us life in him And that really is the motivation in so many ways to live the Christian life, that you have been redeemed. Your sins are forgiven. You're free from those things. Your debt has been paid. Your life now is not to be led to, you don't lead it. I don't obey him. I don't follow him. I don't go to church to get something from him. But I follow him, I trust him, I obey to him, I pray, I, I, I read his word because I get him, because I have him, because I belong to him. I do these things to please him and not to get something from him. You have been redeemed. You have been set free. Are you living freely, following him, knowing him, trusting him, simply because you love him? simply because he has, fought, has accepted you and knows you and no longer has anything against you. The last one, he has made us his own. He has made us his own. And this is the idea of adoption that we're going to dig into. 
There's a movie called Gravity. It stars Sandra Bullock, and she plays an astronaut. And things are not well for her. She's uh, caught in space, and she thinks she's going to die. And when she hits that moment when she thinks she's going to die, she says, I don't even know how to pray because nobody ever taught me how to pray. I'm willing to bet if you grew up in this area at least, you've been exposed to prayer, and you've been at least taught indirectly how to pray. Even if you've come to a service, you come to church once or or twice a year, you've heard the Lord's Prayer and you've heard what that's, that in so many ways, that's what it means to, to learn how to pray because it's Jesus' answer to his disciples are asking Jesus, how do we pray? And Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. But there's so much in that prayer. There's so many concepts there. If you, if you don't understand those concepts, then you're going to miss out on what prayer is. And that leading concept is how Jesus starts that prayer. He says, our Father, that you have to know him as your heavenly Father, And that's Paul's concern here in this passage. You look at verse 5, that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. There's another movie called The Majestic, and it stars an individual named Peter Appleton. And this is in the 1950s, and Appleton is a screenwriter. And uh, it comes... to light, rumors come to float that he was a a communist sympathizer, that he has communist ties, and that's a huge no-no, particularly back in that time. And so he's young, and he's upcoming, he's working, 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 but he starts to get blackballed. He starts to get marginalized because of these rumors that are out there. And finally, things kind of come to a head, and he just goes on this drive, and he gets into an accident, and he wakes up, and he's got amnesia. And he wakes up into this small town, And these people in this town, they think he's really a man named Luke. And they had always assumed that Luke had died in World War II, that he'd been missing in action, killed in action. They didn't know what happened to him. And now they think Luke has come back to them. And even Luke's father thinks that this fellow here, Peter Appleton, is his son. And so he takes him in and he reintroduces him to his old life, his old friends, his old hobbies, his old everything about him, even his own work at the movie theater, which is called The Majestic. And in some sense, it's such a helpful picture to us of what adoption means, having a new identity, a new sense of self, being brought into this new family that he's been introduced to. Adoption, of course, is a legal term. At the time of Galatians, it would have been something, a scenario like this. You've got a, some kind of wealthy couple or some kind of a couple that has, has some kind of means. They don't have any children, and they want to buy a slave. They want to buy somebody, and they want to adopt him as their own. And they change the names, and they go through the legal process, given new names, and they become an heir. They become, uh, they take on the name of this new household. They've been adopted into that family, having all the privileges that go with it. And this is what Paul is highlighting for us. You've been adopted. You belong to him now. You have the name of Christ upon you. You are fundamentally different because you have that name. But what's different about the adoptions that we know today, the legal adoptions, is Their name gets changed and their relationships get changed, but they are still the same. Their their nature is still the same, but that's different when we talk about how Christ adopts us. It's it's a different uh, situation. It's a different standing that God changes our nature from the inside out. 
changes us from the inside out. That's why he talks about the spirit in this passage, the spirit within us that cries out, Abba, Father. The spirit comes into our life, and he begins to change us and make us different. There's one theologian that feels so strongly about this idea of of adoption, this doctrine of adoption, that he writes this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and the whole outlook of life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very very well at all. I share this to, to, to raise the issue. How, why is adoption so important? Why is it so important that we understand that as we think about our relationship with God and what it means to know him? Adoption comes, becomes so important to us when we think about it in the context of prayer and how powerful prayer can be in our lives as we seek to live the Christian life. Remember, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and he gives us that assurance. God sent his son, but he also sent the spirit of his son in us. And there's that sense that that, that we cry out, Abba, Father. We're able to call to him and know him. And that's, in essence, what he's talking about is prayer, being in communication with God. And prayer, understanding our adoption, can be so powerful in our lives if we let it because of two things. And then I'll close in prayer. First, through prayer, we see God change us from the inside out. Through prayer, you can see God change you from the inside out. And here's what, that, what I mean by that. Here's what that looks like. If I would say to you, what makes you, you, what would you say? You'd probably say, well, what makes me, me is what I believe. What makes me, me is what I do. But underneath that, what really makes you is what you love, what you delight in. That's really who you are. So somebody could say, I believe in Christ, but what I really love is making money. Making money is what drives them. It's what controls them. It's the basis of all their decisions that they make. That's who they are. That's what they get excited about. The point is you are not going to change until you begin to change what you love. You change what you love, you change what you have affection for, what you desire, what you have pleasure in, that's going to change you. Enter the Holy Spirit. Enter the, the, the notion that we've been redeemed and been adopted. As we start to, to live with that truth in mind and understand and take delight and joy in, in who God is, we see God change us. And that's why prayer is important. That's why prayer is necessary. That's why we can say prayer changes us. Because it influences what we love, and what we love is an indicator of who we are, and that's how we can change. The last thing is this. By prayer, in the understanding of our adoption, we truly know God. When you get your adoption, when you understand that concept, that truth, there's a sense in which you really know who God is in your life. You can know a lot about God. You can pass a lot of tests about God. You can, do, uh, you can know a lot of it about the Bible and its content and what it says. But it's one thing to know those things, to know about them. But it's another thing to know God personally, to, to know him intimately, to know him intentionally, and to know how he relates to you and to take those promises as your own. 
For example, you read the Psalms, and many of you have done this, you see this. The Psalms contain, have all these, these prayers of, of, of individuals who've had real trouble, suffering, They've been marginalized. They've been rejected. Uh, they've had financial stress. They've had slander thrown out. People lying to them, and they, and they pray, and they pray, and pray. And at the end, you always see them gather strength from that because they're engaging God in prayer, because they're changing their loves, they're reaffirming their loves, and they find strength there. They find nourishment there. They find help there. We are in a season of Advent a season of Christmas, and we've been asking, why Christmas? Why Advent? And this passage says to us, the reason we have Christmas is so that we can know God as our Father, that we can know the security, the rest, and peace, that he will be with us always and forever. Would you pray with me? Father God, we need you. We are busy, busy, busy. We're distracted, distracted. And we need to hear that we belong to you, that you have our lives, that when the time was right, when the time was full, that you sent forth your son. And I pray that that would be amazing to us, amazing to us as we sing, amazing to us as we receive your benediction, amazing to us as we walk into our schedules, into our days. All this for your glory we ask in Christ's name. Amen.